Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for your support on Patreon, John Bentley. John was wined and dined at Stockholm in 1641, alongside other Swedish colonels at Oxenstierna's instruction, as a make-good for all his years of military service. Thanks for all you do, John. This, of course, is all a lie. If you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click on the link in the description below. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to episode 70 of the 30 Years War. Yes, I know, this episode is rather late. I do apologise. These things are kind of running away from me right now. I'm doing my best to cling on with my fingernails as I enter into the final stages of the PhD. Honestly, it's going fine. I'm fairly happy with my progress so far. I just feel pretty terrible about leaving you guys in the lurch for so long. But I also recognise that this is a process. It's a balancing act and it's not easy. It was never easy balancing podcast with life in the past. But now that I'm trying to balance PhD and podcast in life, I sometimes come up short. So yeah, sorry about that. But hopefully we can still enjoy our 30 years of war coverage here. And you won't feel too bad about my inconsistency. I know it'll all be worth it in the end when I'm Dr. Zach and I'm able to talk down to you from my pedestal of education and drop all this knowledge on you guys. I do have some really interesting stuff I've found with my own PhD research that I really can't wait to share. So hopefully all of it will make good in the end. But enough about me, enough about that. Let's pretend that everything that's happening right now in the world isn't really worrying or scary and go back to a simpler time of the 1640s. So last time we investigated the year of disaster that was greeting Spain in 1640. Catalonia and Portugal broke away from the Castilian centre, threatening Madrid security like never before. But it was the involvement of her foes, the Dutch and French, in those theatres that really put the screws in. The war's different theatres along the Rhine, northern Germany, the Pyrenees, north Italy, and increasingly in Iberia itself, were all affected by the absence of Spanish monies. At the same time Spain was struck, Sweden became more daring and ambitious in its operations, thanks to the appointment of a new commander in northern Germany, Lennart Torstensson, who increased the pressure upon the emperor still further, 
after several years, it could be argued, of Sweden recovering from its wounds. Emperor Ferdinand III continued to pursue the war, but there remained in the background numerous preliminary peace negotiations. The phase of simply fighting one's enemies had ended, and now the phase of talking while fighting had dawned, and it was only to end in 1648, following the torturous negotiations in Westphalia. These episodes, the next 12 or so, will serve as a preparation for that piece, but don't think we're finished with the war just yet. On the contrary, with the shortage of funds and general exhaustion, it was more likely that some great collapse or triumph would be had where there was more on the line. The question for both sides was who would break first and where. In neither the French nor Swedish case had this pressure reduced, and in the Allied countries, as much as in the Habsburg states, calls for peace were increasing. It was impossible to deny that the glory days were long past for the Emperor and especially for the King of Spain. The war which had begun with incredible victories in the late 1620s had reached its peak, only to falter and then recover some more, and now apparently it had turned decidedly against the House of Habsburg. What, many Germans and hard-pressed Spaniards would have wondered, was the war even being fought for at this point? The answer depended on whom you asked and the developing situation in the field. Let's investigate that situation then, as I take you to northern Germany in spring 1641. The first half of 1641 was a time of departures. Three major figures died within weeks of one another, leaving new opportunities for both Habsburgs and their allies alike. George William of Brandenburg, a staple of the Thirty Years' War since its beginning, died in December 1640, but his son Frederick William was only in a position to take control of the electorate's foreign policy once the late elector's Catholic advisor, Count Schwarzenberg, died in March 1641. We'll talk about him in a bit. One month later, Duke George of Brunswick-Luneburg, that ally of Sweden from the House of Welf that was based in Hanover, also died. And one month after that, on the 10th of May 1641, the thoroughly worn-down commander of the Swedish army, Johann Banner, followed him to the grave. These three deaths in as many months had a profound impact upon Swedish and imperial policy, so let's look at each case in brief now. Starting with Frederick William of Brandenburg, and one day he would be known as the Great Elector for taking Brandenburg out of the miserable conditions that his father had lumbered into by late 1640. The winter of 1640-41 was especially dire, as the region was partially occupied, stripped of all valuable resources, and its people were aching after so many years of war. The winter of 1640-41 was especially dire. The region was partially occupied, stripped of all valuable resources, and the Brandenburgers were aching from so many years of incessant warfare. Frederick William succeeded to an inheritance, and get this, worth an eighth of that which his father had succeeded to in 1619. In the space of 20 years, Brandenburg had been sucked dry, its lands wasted, its ducal buildings collapsing, its peoples divided, its armies supported by banditry and plunder. First and foremost, Brandenburg needed a figure who would seize the reins of government and work diligently to save the situation. Saving the situation, as Frederick William well understood, involved making a hasty peace with the Swedes. Even if this conflicted with previous alliances, 
his father had made with Emperor Ferdinand III. And now we come to Count Adam von Schwarzenberg, a man we haven't really talked about here, but he was chief advisor to George William of Brandenburg, which was itself a strange arrangement. We have a Catholic advisor to a Calvinist elector in a Lutheran electorate, but George William's experience of the war had been anything but normal. He had been pulled repeatedly between his family's ties, his religion, his loyalty to the emperor, and the immediate security of his lands. Gustavus Adolphus's widow was his sister, and thus the new Queen of Sweden was his niece. It was suggested on his ascension that Frederick William of Brandenburg should thus marry his cousin, tying Brandenburg and Sweden together in an irresistible combination of German and Scandinavian might. This never came to fruition, except perhaps in the minds of alternative history peoples, but Frederick William did dispense almost immediately with any policies save those that directly benefited Brandenburg. You might call him a purveyor of realpolitik before Bismarck made it cool. He had no love for the Emperor's alliance, nor did he let drop the old feud with Sweden over Pomerania. Instead, Frederick William recognised his position for what it was, trapped between Polish lords, Swedish armies and imperial constitutions. He couldn't intervene against one without offending the other, and after pushing out Count Schwarzenberg, who was believed to have died of shock shortly thereafter, the new elector sought to bring this policy of self-interest to life. Frederick William had known only war. He was born in 1620 when the Thirty Years' War was only two years old, and by the time he died in 1688, Europe was a very different canvas, and Brandenburg was a very different place. Few knew of the character or intentions of the 21-year-old elector in 1641, though, and fewer still could have imagined the impact his regime would have on northern Germany, Scandinavia, and Vienna during his 48-year reign. But Frederick William didn't keep them in suspense for long. By September 1641, it was learned in Regensburg that Brandenburg had made peace with Sweden. This was a problematic development for the emperor because he had presented the 1635 Peace of Prague and these new negotiations as the opportunity for all patriotic Germans to arrive at peace and eject the foreign invader. With one of the electors now making a separate peace, Frederick's claims to have the interests of the Germans at heart were undermined. If peace with Sweden was so difficult for the emperor to reach, then why had the new elector of Brandenburg been so capable of reaching it? Pamphlets were published, likely on the new elector's instruction, blaming the Habsburgs for their efforts at inflaming the war's worst effects and going into business for themselves. These tracts found an eager audience in northern Germany, and by autumn 1641, Emperor Ferdinand was faced with rumours that he was continuing the war for his own personal gain. Thanks to the death of another German figure, though, the Emperor was at least comforted by the defection of Hanover into the Imperial camp. Duke George of Brunswick-Luneburg died in April 1641, replaced by his inexperienced nephew, who immediately was cowed by the prevailing imperial influences of the court to make peace with Vienna and leave Sweden behind. This arrangement didn't merely remove a strategically important region from Sweden's orbit. If you weren't aware, the Lake Duke's lands straddled along the southern Danish border. They also left Axel Oxenstierna, the Swedish High Chancellor, with even fewer allies. 
Now only the Palatine exiles, who were spread across Europe fighting for the Dutch, soon to fight for King Charles in England, and fighting for the French, and Amelie Elizabeth of Hesse Castle, were the only ones that remained in the Swedish camp. In other words, all of Germany, save these two pariahs, were on the Emperor's side, which greatly reduced Sweden's political and military options, and Sweden's situation was about to get even worse. On the 10th of May, at the town of Halberstadt in Saxony, Johann Banner died. He had been unwell for some time, and he had been grief-stricken since losing his wife the previous June, due to one of the numerous recurring bouts of plague. Johann Banner had been ruthless, difficult to like, and a heavy drinker. He hadn't always been successful in battle, and he had plainly failed to wrest northern Germany from the Emperor's influence by force alone. However, this former subordinate of Gustavus Adolphus had managed to stop Sweden's bleeding after 1635, stabilise the wounds and maintain Sweden's sole force in the empire, even while the emperor appeared to gather in strength. Even with virtually all of Germany turned against him, Johann Banner had maintained his small army, which rarely exceeded 20,000 men. His victories at Wittstock in 1636 and Chemnitz shortly after had intimidated the later Elector of Brandenburg into fleeing into the wilds of East Prussia, while Banner's efforts to reinforce Hesse Castle, Hanover and even the French at times demonstrated the commitment of Sweden to the war. If the Emperor needed any reminding, then Banner's appearance outside Regensburg in late 1640 at the very least proved his industriousness, even while he was forced to retreat shortly after. Banner was what remained of Gustavus's legacy, and he was a difficult man for a difficult job at a supremely difficult time in Sweden's war effort. With his death, though, there was little time for mourning. The most pressing question, of course, was who would succeed him, followed by those familiar questions from the colonels to the effect of who would pay them. Unlike Oxenstierna's experience from the Powder Barrel Convention, though, resolution with the Swedish colonels was arrived at quickly, although the notion of a Swedish army was virtually irrelevant now. Barely 500 of the 16,000 soldiers, formerly under Banner's command, were actually of Swedish stock. This was instead a mercenary German army with a Swedish flavour seen in the choice of commanders. Oxenstierna didn't select any of the Germans who were nominated to succeed Banner. Instead, he picked a sickly Swede by the name of Lennart Torstensen, who was at that moment not even in Germany. The choice might have seemed wrong-headed, but the Chancellor's decision bore fruit later in the year, and Torstensen proved himself the superior even of Banner in terms of his tactical approaches. It was now that many of the disparate threads of early 1641 were blended together. Oxenstierna was able to take advantage of the truce with Brandenburg to recall the leading colonels and pause campaigning for the moment. Thanks to the renewed treaty with France, which granted increased subsidies, Sweden was able to take out a line of credit, which was extended to the underpaid colonels that were wined and dined in Stockholm. In fact, it was because of rumours of a looming truce between the Emperor and Sweden that Claude Davout, the French agent, agreed to grant an additional 80,000 thalers to the French subsidy. A peace between the Emperor and Sweden had only seemed possible because Ferdinand had agreed to give up all of Pomerania to the Swedes in return for peace, and Ferdinand had only done this in the first place because Brandenburg had made peace with Sweden. And so the interconnected nature of these developments created ripples within the war, to the effect that by the second half of 1641, France and Sweden had secured their alliance, 
Brandenburg was out of the war, and a new Swedish commander was ready to lead his paid army against the Imperials. All the while, the negotiations continued at Hamburg and Regensburg. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Sixteen forty one also saw French attentions pulled in several different directions. The year began with a French triumph at Monuc on the outskirts of Barcelona, where a French Catalan force routed the Spaniards. The rest of the year saw Richelieu concentrate his attentions on the Spanish Netherlands, where Ara, the capital of Artois, was seized in July, only to be lost to the Spanish in November, and the Duke of Lorraine made peace in spring, only to resume his war in summer. Yes, it was a bewildering series of events, and in addition to the Italian front, it demonstrated precisely how overextended French commitments had become. In Italy, Piedmont and Montferrat had been secured, but Milan was still a powerful hub of Spanish influence, and the French commander simply lacked the resources or vision to make any headway there. In spring 1641, in the midst of these interconnected campaigns, the very regime of Louis XIII suffered an incredibly close call when his army was routed by the Comte de Soissons, a second cousin of the French king and an ally of Spain. Only for Soissons' death during the battle, where he was said to have died from an accidental wound, Louis XIII could have been in danger of being usurped by a Spanish candidate. But the Battle of La Marfée itself had been a close call. The event had shown first that several armies campaigning in the region was necessary, as the siege of Arras had continued even as this disaster was sustained. Second, the loss and miracle of Soissons' death thereafter underlined the point that Richelieu had made many enemies in his rise to the top, and his regime was far from popular among the French people, who were heavily taxed to pay for his policies. This would blow up in his face in time. 
More obvious opportunities for success against Spain seemed to present themselves, but these opportunities netted few genuine gains. The whole point of the Catalan front was to suck in Spanish soldiers, but to save France from additional commitments. Instead, though, France wasted nearly 30 ships in an abortive attack on Cadiz in league with the Portuguese and experienced failure once again when they were beaten back from the siege of Tarragona on the Mediterranean coast in August. The Dutch made a similarly unimpressive impact on the Portuguese war, though they would return with a nominal peace treaty to Lisbon in 1642. Unlike the French, the Dutch were impressive abroad. They continued to seize portions of Brazil and establish a sphere of influence ranging well into the murky Amazon. Short of propping up these revolts and taking a few reinforced positions along the borders, Richelieu would have had to admit that 1641 had returned very little in the way of triumphs, which likely helps to explain why he was willing to accept the Treaty of Hamburg in late December, which prepared the ground for the peace negotiations in Westphalia. 1641 had been equally uninspiring for Frederick Henry, the Prince of Orange, who had led Dutch armies since 1625. His last great triumph had been at Breda in 1637, and his campaign since had only brought failure. Notwithstanding Frederick Henry's disappointing returns, his career prospects were at least more positive than those of Philip IV's brother, the Cardinal Infant, who was himself most famous for his 1634 victory at Nordlingen. But Nordlingen was a distant memory for the melancholy, prematurely aged Cardinal Infant by 1641. He noted, If the war with France is to continue, we have not the means to take the offensive. The Spanish and Imperial armies are reduced to such a state that they can undertake nothing. The only solution is to establish supporters in France and use them to make the Paris government more amenable. But this chance had surely passed with the death of Soissons in... July 1641, and as the enthusiasm for a revolt against Richelieu fizzled out, so too did the life force of this Habsburg prince fizzle out with it. He had been heavily burdened by the pressures and demands of the war against the Dutch, and the eruption of revolts in Iberia convinced him he could expect even fewer nuggets of help from Madrid from now on. The Cardinal Infant Ferdinand thus died a broken, wasted man in Brussels in early November 1641, at the age of just 31 years old. Back in Madrid, the Cardinal Infant's brother was having an equally difficult time. The increasingly isolated Count Duke Olivares, then in his late 60s, was learning that it was impossible to pay for a single one of these military theatres, let alone all of them at once. Stopgap measures were again implemented, as the copper currency was reduced to one-sixth of its previous value, and those in possession of silver had even greater demands placed upon them. So desperate was the situation that in spring 1641, as these measures were implemented, 150 people were sent to the Madrid dungeons for their inability to pay all that was asked of them. The situation was indeed grave, as one Spanish merchant noted. Trade and commerce were confused, and the prices rose enormously, so that people could not find money for boots and clothes, and even provisions could not be had, as no one would sell. The copper money was valueless, and people threw it about or forced it upon those to whom they owed money as the law gave it currency. The agony and desperation of the people were intense, and utter despair consumed the hearts and lives of the people. Olivares had not merely alienated the long-suffering working classes, he had also pushed several of his aristocratic peers over the edge. 
In one especially scandalous occasion, the Duke of Medina Sidonia, a brother-in-law of the new King of Portugal, had attempted to make himself the overlord of Andalusia. The effort misfired, but the writing was on the wall. Olivares was losing the battles abroad in the military sphere, just as he was losing the battle for the hearts and minds of his compatriots. Criticism of his regime became increasingly acute, as one contemporary recorded his opinions. Our ruler, hesitant and nearly swamped by the weight of affairs, went around asking how he could pacify Catalonia. If he were to ask me, I should answer that it could be done by leaving it alone, by not always harrying its inhabitants, by not inflicting on them every hour for a full 19 years, yuntas and decrees and councils, and investigations into their estates and persons, by using temperate words and temperate actions, and treating them in a way that befits the vassals of so illustrious a prince. The Spanish paralysis, it might be said, complemented the Dutch inaction and the French failures, but in northern Germany, with the arrival of Torstensen as the new commander in November 1641, matters soon began to tilt in favour of the Swedes. Torstensen succeeded to an army which had already proved itself earlier in the year. Despite the confusion at its head, an imperial Bavarian army commanded by the emperor's brother and Piccolomini had been defeated in the Battle of Wolfenbüttel in June 1641. Now the victory was a pyrrhic one, but it demonstrated the potency of Sweden's, or Germany's, military power. After years of consolidation, defence and manoeuvre, Torstensen was eager to take this power to the next level combating the emperor's allies directly and aiming at the heart of the more prosperous centre of the empire. First, though, on Christmas Day 1641, the interested parties paused to agree on the form but not the content of the peace negotiations, a process which would only end with the Peace of Westphalia some seven years later. The Treaty of Hamburg between Sweden and France had itself only been agreed to after many years of negotiation, where affairs on the battlefield and the changing proclivities of German princes moved concessions and opportunities across the board. At different occasions, Richelieu had worked to move a conference involving all of France's allies and enemies into being, while the Emperor had attempted to separate Sweden from France. With the events of 1641 in context, a halfway home between these goals was established. Osnabrück would host the Swedish delegation with Protestant allies, and at Münster the French dignitaries with the Catholic powers gathered, with intermediaries from the Emperor moving between each. The cities were to be neutral, which would certainly help to reduce the military burden on Westphalia, but conspicuous in their absence were the Spanish and Dutch, who would yet to commit to send representatives to Westphalia, their war being separate from that between the Franco-Swedish and Emperor's forces. Notwithstanding these technicalities and setbacks, the announcement was officially made on Christmas Day 1641 to the effect that the Holy Roman Emperor wishes to announce to all whom it may concern that after many years of negotiations over the basis to start general peace talks and after the most diverse difficulties arose from the preliminaries, finally, thanks to divine assistance and the intervention of the authority of the Serene King of Denmark as mediator, the following preliminaries have been agreed. Now, you may be puzzled by the sudden appearance of the Danish king in such a prominent position. How had Sweden been persuaded to agree to King Christian IV of Denmark, a historical rival of the late Gustavus Adolphus, to play a significant role in determining the spoils it would receive in any peace arrangement? 
Surely the jealous Danes would prevent Sweden getting what it deserved, and would drive a hard bargain just to spite Oxenstierna for succeeding where they had failed in the 1620s. In fact, though these concerns remained in the background for Oxenstierna, he was content, at least outwardly, at Sweden's rival taking charge of the duties of mediation. When King Christian had approached the idea of mediation in the late 1630s, these had been rejected on the basis that the jealous Danish king would do all in his power to undermine Sweden and force her to compromise on her war aims. But what had changed since the 1630s? Certainly there had been few friendly gestures sent from either side in the years since Gustavus's death. Denmark and Sweden nearly came to blows in 1638, and the following year an imperial councillor was spotted in Copenhagen, apparently convinced of his ability to persuade King Christian to form an offensive alliance with the emperor against Sweden. The plan didn't get off the ground, though, thanks to the restraint upon King Christian's regime, which had tightened following the disastrous intervention into the war in 1625. Since then, Denmark's royal council wielded far more power and effectively reduced Christian's freedom of action. Christian attempted to rebrand his position thereafter as a concerned party only interested in mediation. This produced a curious result, where a Danish agent attempted to increase his reputation by claiming that Spain would agree to any treaty made in Hamburg, and none other than King Christian himself would personally guarantee Spain's position. Never was it explained how Christian might actually do this, and the Danish king initially refused, only to agree by the end of November 1641. It was this personal guarantee, a meaningless and vague device for sure, that persuaded Claude Davo, the French negotiator at Hamburg, to proceed. Spain, Claude Davo believed, would abide by the terms of the Treaty of Hamburg, and if she did not, then at the very least it would cause some headaches for the Danes. Cardinal Richelieu was certainly concerned that his goal of a universal peace conference hosting all parties would be jeopardised if the Spanish neglected to attend, and there was an odd choice to place the responsibility at Denmark's door. Nor was the Danish element the sole issue of this potential peace treaty. Almost as soon as it had been signed, arguments broke out over the language used and the order of precedence, to the extent that Sweden and France had to be issued with separate copies of the document. The French caused further headaches, as imperial negotiators noticed how they were still referring to Ferdinand III as a mere King of Hungary rather than as the Emperor. This slight had to be addressed, but it was a sign of the pettiness which was to come on both sides. The exhausting, mind-numbing procedures which were necessary to indulge with before coming face to face with one's equal, even down to where one even sat at the table, could drag on for hours. The ratification process dragged on well into the spring of the new year, in spite of the high-minded declaration that this preliminary peace conference would begin on the 25th of March 1642. And of course, there was the confusing layout of this preliminary peace conference itself. You might be wondering why the conference had to be spread over two cities in the first place. Certainly the French would have preferred the one city rather than the complexities of stretching their diplomats into two. The key reason for the separation was that Swedish dignitaries resented the presence of the Pope. The papacy declared its intention to tolerate Protestantism in the final treaty, but to the Swedes this smacked of disrespect that Pope Urban VIII was laying claim to rights that were not his own rubbed them the wrong way. 
The French at least managed to convince the Swedes to reside at Osnabrück rather than the distant Cologne or Lübeck. Henceforth, the conference would be split between the two cities, but this division came with two important caveats. First, the division was to be political rather than religious. In other words, those at war with Sweden, or interested in the Swedish peace, would attend in Osnabrück, and the same was true for Munster with France. Second, per Richelieu's insistence, the two cities would remain part of the one conference, notwithstanding the distance between them. This fiction, of course, could only be maintained by constant travel between the two places, and so the road linking Munster to Osnabrück was also made militarily neutral. It seems that the parties had thought about this process a great deal, but they were to be utterly unprepared for how long the process took. The date for the opening of these preliminary negotiations was the 25th of March 1642, but this optimistic goal failed to take into consideration a whole legion of issues, including matters as simple as the process for issuing passports, which was the responsibility both sides found frustrating and surprisingly complex to attend to. Much is revealed by the fact that the provisional date was actually missed by more than three years, and not until spring 1645 would concrete negotiations at the two cities actually be hosted with any modicum of intention or sincerity, and even then the pace of the war still got in the way. Contemporaries recognised that their hand could be massively empowered by a military victory or through the capture of a fortified region or landmark. While in possession of a metaphorical and sometimes literal gun to the head of one's counterpart, compliance with demands was much more likely. But this said nothing about the general complexity of the whole process, especially when, as we will see, the French and Swedes upped their demands, insisting not just on the presence of the major powers and their allies, but also of every estate, in other words, every territorial unit of any consequence that existed in the Holy Roman Empire. And other events were developing even as the passports went into production. With the conference date set and commitments made, there was more of an impetus than ever before on the commanders to apply new pressure with the goal of resting fresh concessions. Having taken up the baton of the Swedish army in November 1641, Lennart Torstensson was the perfect man for the job. He arrived at his army with 7,000 conscripts and, most importantly, a keen energy to fix the problems that the late banner had left him. For the next four months, he repaired the Swedish army, restoring its discipline and endearing himself to the 15,000 men under his command. He was joined by another 5,000 men in the new year and he reinforced his base at Verben, where Gustavus Adolphus had fortified his army a decade before. This was not the only echo of the Swedish king. Torstensson learned from his predecessor's mistakes, and he noted that Banner's invasion of Silesia in 1639 had failed because Banner neglected to seize the fortified places which held the region in rapture. In April 1642, then, he began this process, launching a new invasion of Silesia and sending his subordinate, Konigsmark, to raid Saxony and keep John George of Saxony distracted. Strategically, Torstensen could benefit from Saxon exhaustion and the absence of Brandenburg from the question, but he still had to reckon with the Imperials. Fortunately for him, Torstensen found that his revitalised army was more than a match for those Imperials. This small detachment of cavalry under Konigsmark, which he had sent to raid Saxony, reappeared just at the right time 
to trap and destroy an imperial relief force of 7,000 men near the town of Schweidnitz on the 31st of May. Königsmark's army of nearly 6,000 cavalry performed valiantly, and the imperial commander in question, a Duke of Lauenburg and veteran of Gustavus's campaigns, was run through and killed. The imperial army virtually disintegrated in the region, with nearly 4,000 of its 7,000 men written off as casualties. When Torstensen learned of this triumph by Königsmark, he knew he was free during the spring and summer to have his way with Silesia. But Torstensen was not content just with Silesia. Sensing an inherent weakness in the imperial defence, Torstensen left half his army in Upper Silesia while he marched south into Moravia. It had been some time before armies had pillaged the region, and Torstensen found it ripe with new uniforms, food, wine, and all manner of other spoils. No Swedish army under banner had ever moved so far so fast. Olmutz, the Moravian capital, was seized, and a mass exodus of its population south caused panic in Vienna, since Torstensen was only 200 kilometres from the imperial capital, and he would now have to be stopped before he spilled into any more of the Habsburg hereditary lands. Not to worry, though, because the emperor's brother Leopold William was on the case. He assembled an army of 20,000 men and prepared to confront Torstensen at a familiar place, Breitenfeld, where Torstensen had commanded the artillery of the Swedish king 11 years before. In this second battle of Breitenfeld, Torstensen was outnumbered by 7,000 imperial and bohemian militiamen, but he knew that this was the emperor's only army in Germany. If his brother was unsuccessful, Emperor Ferdinand would be forced either to make great concessions at the peace table or find some other way to placate Sweden's wrath. Either way, Torstensen was determined to stand and fight and make this a repeat of the first Breitenfeld rather than something closer to Nordlingen. Fortunately for Torstensen, the day was his. Battle was met on the 2nd of November 1642 and the two armies fought at right angles to their positions of a decade before. The ghosts of that battle may well have been palpable, as the imperial left flank, along with the Saxons, routed in the face of a sudden onslaught from the cavalry at dawn. From that point, Leopold William was on the defensive, and he never managed to rally his inexperienced troops to where they were needed. It was the quality of Torstensen's men in the end that proved the difference, but the cost was still high. Torstensen lost 4,000 to the Archduke's 3,000, though an additional 5,000 of the latter's army were also taken as prisoners, which made up some of the numbers. It certainly wasn't as spectacular a triumph as the first Breitenfeld, and it also wasn't exactly the thumping, crushing victory which some accounts have suggested, but it was still a vital turning point in Swedish and imperial fortunes. In similar scenes to those following Breitenfeld in 1631, Sweden's enemies battened down the hatches, preparing for the worst. Leipzig surrendered to Torstensen, and Maximilian raised the Bavarian militia. Ferdinand urged John George of Saxony to fight on, and he did for the moment, but after that fiasco, it was plain that the Habsburgs had no army in central Germany to combat Torstensen's warpath. The unglamorous old efforts of Banner were forgotten, as the Swedes seemed to be back on top form once again. News of the triumph rebounded across the empire and Europe, being exaggerated in its scale and impact as it spread. The association of the battlefield with the late Swedish king, and the coincidence that his lieutenant had now achieved a signal victory in that same place, 
certainly helped fan the story, and it certainly gave pause to those dignitaries who might have been on their way to Westphalia. It was an additional disaster for the Spanish, who appreciated that their bond with the Emperor was further loosened, and a separate peace could follow with France if the Swedes marched on Vienna. For Richelieu, the news was vindication that the Swedes were a worthwhile ally to have invested in after all, and that the tide could in fact be turning for good. Not for the first time or the final time, military victory had changed the narrative of the Thirty Years' War. We're going to continue with that narrative in, oh my, 2023? Yes, that's right, this is my last Thirty Years' War episode of 2022. I am considering doing another episode of some kind. Part of me would really love to do a new updated Ukraine episode, and I'm sure you guys would love that too, but it all depends on time and energy and all the usual things. I really appreciate your guys' support of this podcast in 2022, and believe me when I say if 2022 was the Johan Banner equivalent of just hungering down and doing my best, I'm feeling like 2023 will be the year I do a Torstensen and break out from this prison of the PhD, and I don't know, I'm messing around with these metaphors, but you get me. I do hope that with the dissertation done, it is due on the 30th of September 2023 after all, I do hope with that weight off my mind I'll be able to move on to more podcasting things and bring WDF to the next level. I have loads of plans, it's so much exciting stuff I've come across that I can't wait to share with you guys, but hey, all in good time. So I hope you have a great day, a great week, And you have a great Christmas and everything else. And if we don't have an episode released in the interim, then I will say to you, thanks so much for listening to this show in 2022. And I'll see you all next year. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.